0: The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. If you uh, take your Bibles and turn to the 11th chapter of Romans, we're going to start reading at verse 11. This is God's holy and inspired word. I say then... They did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world, and their failure, or their loss is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness or fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also, and if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in, and in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches, but if you are arrogant, remember, it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold, in the kindness and severity of God, to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. One of my favorite Figures from church history is uh, Robert Murray McShane, who ministered in Scotland in the 1830s. He died at age 29. God used McShane in a profound way in the church that he pastored and, and beyond. McShane writes this in a sermon quoting from Deuteronomy 7, he says, the Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people. For you were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you. And then McShane says these words. He says, strange, sovereign, most peculiar love. He loved them Speaking of the people of Israel, he loved them because he loved them. Should we not be like God in this peculiar attachment? But you say God has sent them into captivity. Now it is true God has scattered them into every land, and then he quotes a number of texts on scattering Israel. And then McShane says, It is true that Israel is given for a little moment into the hand of her enemies, but it is as true that they are still the dearly beloved of his soul. Should we not give them the same place in our hearts which God gives them in his heart? Shall we be ashamed to cherish the same affection which our heavenly Father cherishes? Shall we be ashamed to be unlike the world and like God in this peculiar love for captive Israel? But you say, God has cast them off. Has God cast away his people which he foreknew? God forbid. The whole Bible contradicts such an idea. And then he quotes a series of passages and ends with Isaiah. Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget. Yet I will not forget you, says the Lord. And so all Israel shall be saved as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and he shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And then McShane concludes with these words. He says, now the simple question for each of you is and for our beloved church, should we not share with God in his peculiar affection for Israel? If we are filled with the spirit of God, should we not love as he loves Should we not grave Israel, that is, inscribe Israel upon the palms of our hands and resolve that through our mercy they may also obtain mercy? McShane preached that sermon in the 1830s and would actually travel to the Middle East to evangelize the Jewish settlements that were there in what was called Palestine. When you get to Romans chapter 11, Romans chapter 11 is one of these bombshell passages. Paul begins, of course, as we've seen, With the question, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? And he gives the implied no, but then he gives an absolute no. And he then says, For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. So, exhibit A God has not rejected his people. Because look at me. I'm a Jew. I'm a tribe of Benjamin. I'm the seed of Abraham. And so this is proof. And then in chapter 11 and verse 7, he asks this question What then, what Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, that is righteousness. But those who were chosen, or literally, but election obtained it, and the rest were hardened. And so what Paul is doing is, Paul is, Paul is, answering this question of, um, since God has always had a remnant, and even at the present time, he has a remnant, what about the rest? And Paul says, well, the rest, he actually has hardened. But then, that leads him to another question in verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to, we could say, irreversibly fall, did they? May it never And so in verse 11, Paul says, Israel has in fact stumbled. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. The vast majority are in unbelief, even though hardened by God, they're morally responsible for having rejected Messiah, but they did not stumble so as to fall beyond recovery. And so then what Paul does is, in verses 11 through 15, is is he compares and contrasts Israel and the Gentiles. And he goes from Israel's transgression, then bounces over to that leads to the Gentiles' salvation, and it's designed to make Israel jealous. Israel's transgression leads to riches, for the world, Israel's failure or loss leads to riches for the Gentiles. So after Paul actually talks about how their transgression, their fail and their loss actually leads to the gospel going to the Gentiles, Paul then turns around and he says, how much more? So if this is true, lesser to the greater, how much more will their fullness be? In other words, Paul is expecting something great. And he says, now in the present time, I magnify my ministry to the Gentiles. And what do I do? I actually try to provoke Israel to jealousy right now in order to save some. And then Paul goes back to what John Stott calls his ricocheting grace. He says their rejection, Israel's rejection, that is God's rejection of Israel, leads to reconciliation of the world, that is the Gentile world. And so Paul then arguing again, lesser to the greater, What will if, if, if their rejection leads to reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance by God be but life from the dead? Glorious. I take life from the dead to be life from the dead for the whole world. The Jew first and then the Gentile. And so Paul now is is giving this glorious picture of what God is doing. And so in the present time, he's saving some. But there's coming a day of how much more. There's coming a day when we can anticipate God moving through the gospel of Jesus Christ among Jewish people so that there is indeed, even at the end of the age, a mass conversion of Jewish people who come not simply because they're Jewish, they come because they believe in Jesus the Messiah and they're brought in to the church, the people of God. <laughs> there, you, you can't be a pessimist. <laughs> right? You can't be, okay, well, here's my eschatology. Why try to do anything any good? It's just like polishing brass on the Titanic. No, there is, there is coming a day when God is going to move upon the hearts of the sons and the daughters of Jacob, and they will bow the knee to Jesus, their Messiah. well, I could stop right there and be totally happy. But, I got to earn my keep. Verse 16. Now, verse 16, Paul's now moving. He's going to move to two images and then he's going to capitalize on the second one, all right? So, verse 16 introduces the imagery of the root and the branches, which Paul then is going to develop into the olive tree imagery with natural branches and then grafted in wild branches. All right, so this is this is uh, in a sense the transition into the famous olive tree picture. But you read verse sixteen, and it raises immediate questions, right? So you read verse sixteen, you go, so if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump. Is also holy. And if the root is holy, the branches are holy too. Now, what exactly does Paul mean by literally just first fruit? New American Standard helps us out here first piece of dough. All right? What does he mean by first fruit? What does he mean by dough or the whole lump? What does he mean? They're holy. What does he mean by root? What does he mean by branches? What does he mean by they're holy? Right? And so I want to I just take a look at this because it's, it's fascinating. It's important. So the New American Standard uh, and the ESV, by the way, leave out a very important little word. Um you should have something like but if or for if. There should be some little word in there. A lot of our English translations actually just say if in verse 16. And what I want to say is that I think that's a, a mistake because verse, verse 16 is a, is a hinge verse, and it's giving the grounds for what Paul just said in 11 to 15, but then it's also transitioning over to what he's going to argue in 17 to 24, right? So you think of verse 16 as a little hinge verse. Um, The fancy word for it is a Janus, because in Greek mythology, Janus was a Greek god that looked both ways, all right? So that's what the verse is doing. It's transitioning, grounding 11 to 15, right, the argument, but then transitioning to the developed argument. So what or who is the first fruit? So first fruits in the Old Testament would be the first portion of whatever then is is offered to God. Okay, so you offered to God first fruits, so if it was harvest or whatever, um, so you take that harvest, you make the dough, you take that first batch of dough, that's the first fruit, it's offered up to God, and first fruit actually did two things, one, you were consecrating the rest to God by consecrating the first fruit, but you also were in a sense looking to a greater harvest after the first fruit. Okay? And th- by the way, that's the way both Old and New Testament talks. The New Testament talks about Christ being the first fruit of the resurrection, right? So in a sense, he's the first one who is to be raised from the dead, never to die again. But that first fruit offered up to God, as it were, consecrates the rest of the harvest, which is us. Okay? So that's, that's the imagery. So the first batch of dough is offered to God, guarantees the rest, but also consecrates the rest. So then the question would be, who or what is the lump? (laughs) I chose lump instead of just dough because, well... It sounds funnier to me. Yeah. So, who, what is the first fruit? Who, what is the lump, the, the rest of the dough, right? So, the first batch, the first piece of the dough offered as first fruits. Well, what's the rest of it? And then, what does it mean to say that the rest of the batch is holy? All right? So you're tracking with me as to why we're we're, we're trying to to think through this. But then Paul goes to the root. So if the root is holy, then so are the branches. So then the question is, is who or what is the root? Um, And then who or what are the branches? And of course, then what does it mean to say that the branches are holy by virtue of the holiness of the root? Now, I was thankful when I read Tom Schreiner this week, when he said, deciding this matter is extremely difficult, and any answer must be tentative. It's always good when you're asking yourself questions, you feel a little stumped, and then you read somebody way smarter than you that says, yeah, this is tough. All right? So, How do we interpret this? How do we interpret verse 16? You do see the importance of interpreting verse 16 for the rest of the passage, right? Okay. Now, the first question to ask in verse 16 is whether the two images, first batch, lump, root, branches, those two images are making one point or two That's the first question Is Paul giving us two perspectives Is he saying two things or is he saying one thing in two ways Now here's the thing is that does Paul ever say one thing in two ways Of course he does Does Paul ever say one thing in three ways four ways Yeah, so it's not like it would be like, oh my goodness, what's Paul doing? He's lost his mind, right? He does that. But does Paul often say two things to mean two things? Okay? So you can't just go, well, this is what Paul always does, right? Because Paul does both in a sense. So um, to make matters a little more complicated, Tom Schreiner thinks that to make them say two things... He says, unnecessarily complicates the imagery. So I don't want to unnecessarily complicate the imagery. But then I look over and Charles Cranfield, who I really like, says, there's no sufficient reason to assume that the dough and the roots must have the same application or meaning. You think you have a hard job. I don't even know how many hours I spent on verse 16. So, instead of now exploring all of the possible variations of the two images, all right, which would actually take us quite a while because there are quite a few, let me just uh, simplify, all right, without all the nuances. Some people say that the first fruit and the root is Christ, okay, okay? They say the first fruit and the root is Christ. Others say the first fruit and the root is Jewish believers. All right? Others say the root or the first fruit is, or I should say the root is Abraham. The branches are his descendants. The first fruit is the Jewish remnant. Most common view is that the first fruit and the root refer to the patriarchs and the whole lump and the branches then refer to the rest of Israel, all right? That's the most most common way that this is explained. So the two images are saying the same thing and the same thing is this. Abraham or the patriarchs is the root, the first fruit, and then the lump and all the branches—that is the rest of Israel. Now, I'm going to give you my—I'm going to give you the fruit of my labor. All right, and if you—if you disagree with me, um, that is—that is perfectly fine. Everybody has the right to be wrong. No. I revert right back to Tom Schreiner's statement, any answer must be tentative, all right? So, I I actually, with with humility, present this to you. So, I think both images, first fruit, lump, root, branches, I think they're conveying slightly different things. So, it's two things, not one. And I think that Because of the context, which I'll show you in a second. And so even though my favorite commentators take both images as patriarchs, rest of Israel, I think that the context warrants seeing two different but complementary images. So let me run this by you and see what you think. The first batch, first fruit, refers to the Jewish elect remnant that Paul's already spoken of, and the whole lump refers to Jew and Gentile being brought in together. So why do you think that? Two things. One... Is Romans 11 and the image of the olive tree, is it about natural olive branches being broken off and wild olive branches being brought in among remaining olive branches? Yes. So the image itself is the way in which Jew and Gentile are both in the tree. Okay? So... If Paul's argument so far has been God's always had a remnant, always will have a remnant, then the first batch of dough, that which is offered up, is is the elect remnant of Jewish believers, that is Jewish believers in Messiah. And then the rest of the batch is Jew and Gentile being brought in, and because the because the first fruit is holy, the whole lump is holy. So here's the second reason why I think, it's, I think it's this way is that Paul is showing that the inclusion of Gentiles with Jewish believers does not contaminate Jewish believers. Does that make sense? One of the biggest, by the way, when we get to Romans twelve, but especially Romans fourteen we 're going to see that there was this tremendous conflict in the church between Jew and Gentile all right it wasn 't between Baptist and Methodists, it was between Jew and Gentile all right so if you were if you were a Jewish believer, would you have? let's say, any kind of reservation about Gentiles being brought in to the full privileges of Israel's covenant with God? Would would there be like, I don't know about that? Well, of course you would, because that was the whole Judaizer uh, controversy. That's all that was about. People, Acts chapter 15, right? Certain people from James, right? obstensibly believers, and they're going and they're finding Gentiles, and what are they telling the Gentiles? Well, it's really nice that you're believing in our Messiah, but if you really want to be us, you got to become us by getting circumcised, keeping Sabbath and new moon and festival, and then also dietary laws. In other words, the, the message of the early Jewish Christians was often, in order to be a Christian, you need to become a Jew. So would there be concern about contamination? The answer is, of course there would. And here's, to me, this is, this is a weighty argument. So Paul says, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, talking about marriage. And he says that a believing spouse sanctifies an unbelieving spouse. Do you think sanctify means saved? No. If you're married to an unbeliever, they're not saved by virtue of your faith. All right? Paul's asking Is the marriage unholy? His answer is no. The unbelieving spouse is sanctified. In a sense, the marriage itself is sanctified by the believing spouse. In what way is the unbeliever sanctified? The unbeliever is actually set apart, as it were, consecrated under the influence of the gospel and a believing spouse. Then Paul says this, otherwise, if that weren't so, otherwise your children would be unholy, but now they are holy in the Lord. So does that mean that if you, are, if you have one believing parent in a marriage and you have children, that your children are automatically saved? No. I wish. Right? Save us a lot of heartache. Not the point. The point is... The marriage between a believer and an unbeliever does not make an unholy seed. The children are sanctified by virtue of the believing parent. All right? That is, the children actually have children of a believing parent or believers actually have special gospel privileges that doesn't make them saved, but it sets them apart to actually receive and hear the gospel in a way that pagan kids may not have. So, Here's Paul's concern as he's dealing with it in 1 Corinthians, and that is the presence of an unbeliever doesn't make the marriage unclean. The presence of an unbeliever doesn't make your children unclean, but rather they're sanctified. So I take it to be a similar argument here in Romans 11, that if the first offering The first batch of dough, that is an elect believing remnant, if they're holy, everybody else that comes in because of them, including yucky Gentiles, they don't actually make the lump unholy. The lump is made holy by virtue of their connection with the first batch that was offered. Okay? Don't ask me to repeat that. All right, got it? It makes sense? Okay, now, that then moves to the second image. So first image, first fruit, elect Jewish remnant, lump, Jew-Gentile together, sanctified. The second image is the root and the branches. I think that the root is Abraham, the patriarchs, and the covenant promise made to Abraham and the patriarchs. That's the root. Okay? Branches. In verse 16, what is not specified? What kind of branches? It just says branches. If it said unnatural branches, you'd go, ah, Gentiles. If it said natural branches, you'd go, ah, Jewish people, but it just says branches. So I take branches to be a reference to both believing Jewish people who remained a branch, they were not broken off, and then engrafted Gentile branches and all of those branches, believing Jews, believing Gentiles, are sanctified, how? By their connection with the root of the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, okay? So, now, let me just say a couple of things before we jump to verse 17. 17 to 24 makes, makes a whole unit. And what follows... Is not simply the use of olive tree imagery and the relationship between broken off branches, unbelieving Jews, and engrafted branches, Gentiles? Is that, is that what it's in part about? And the answer is, of course, that's what it's in part about. But Paul's primary, Paul's primary thrust in this section is not um, horticulture. Or, or, I don't know, Where is Chad Lammers here today? Maybe he could help me with a good illustration of people that graft branches in and so forth, okay? I don't even know what they're called. I doubt they're called grafters, all right? Um, but that's not Paul's point. I should say it's not Paul's main point. Paul's main point in 17 to 24 is a warning To Gentile believers, not to be arrogant and conceited towards the Jews. All right. That's his, In, in other words, 17 to 24 is really interesting as far as olive trees go. But his primary emphasis is a, is an, is an ethical thrust to actually drive home. And he does it with four commands in this section. Verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Verse 20, do not be conceited, but fear. Verse 22, behold then, it's a command, the kindness and severity of God. Okay? So, Paul's, Paul's thrust is to make sure that the branches that got grafted in, because some branches were cut off, don't start to look down on the cut off branches or even the remaining branches, Is that possible? Is it possible in the church for one group of people to think they're theologically or spiritually superior to another group? You think in 2,000 years of church history that's ever happened? (laughs) It happened big time in the early church. And the Jews had a pride towards the Gentiles, but there was also a Gentile pride that was woven into the Greco-Roman culture of looking at the Jews as second-class citizens. So it was it was a two-way street. But here, Paul is Paul is honing in on the fact that he does not want Gentile believers to have a even a whiff of anti-Semitism in them. Now that brings up a second thing in this passage and that is this section now prompts the discussion on the perseverance and the preservation of the saints. Did you get that while we were reading? Or did you think we were just talking about olive trees? Verse 21, if God did not spare the natural branches... Will not spare you either. What? Hey, Paul's messing with my theology right now. Verse twenty-two: Behold, in the kindness and severity of God, to those who fell, severity; but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in His kindness, otherwise you will also be cut off. You starting to see this? Verse 23, they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. And so all of a sudden, these verses actually then, they're gonna, they're gonna drive us to think hard about but at the end of the day, it just simply is constituted as a threat. You understand that? It's a threat. You'll remain if you continue. Otherwise, you'll be cut off. Do you want to know what that means? Right? Okay. I mean, I don't know about you, But I love the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. I love it. And guess what? We're going to have to ask some hard questions about what is Paul talking about here. All right. Well, verse 17 now. Paul now says, so, so verse 16 is that transitional verse, and now he starts to develop the root branch imagery. Verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive, literally a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, Do not be arrogant toward the branches, but if you're arrogant, remember, it's not you who supports the root, but the root who supports you. So verse 17, you've got broken off branches and grafted in branches. So now, the the, what was just root and branch now is an olive tree. And of course, the olive tree is at least on two different occasions, Jeremiah 11, Hosea 14, an image for Israel. He says this, some branches were broken off. Do you know what that's called? It's called an understatement. Why? Because in the first part of the passage, it's a small remnant, and the rest were hardened. Now Paul just says some were broken off. Now, of course, the broken off branches refer to unbelieving Jews who rejected Messiah and in their state of unbelief, God hardened them. But here's here's Paul's point. Paul is shifting not to the removal of natural branches, but in a sense, really the the grafting in of the unnatural. So don't, don't let some throw you off. He's not, he's not changed the imagery at all. He's just simply now moving to the way in which some of those branches were cast off. That is the rest who were hardened. And then he says, and you really interesting. He moves, he moves to a second person singular, even though he's talking to the Gentiles, you being a wild, wild olive tree were grafted in. So now the focus becomes the branches of the wild olive tree. So the wild olive tree is the Gentiles, and now you have in a sense Gentile wild olive branches are being grafted in, and then here's here's the key. Among them. Among who? Wild olive branches being grafted in among believing Jewish branches okay. you 're grafted in right with them you're right you're in a sense you're you 're in it together. The Gentiles have been grafted in to that one tree which is the people of God, and they 've come in right alongside of the natural branches that are believing Israel. How did they get in? Well, some of those branches were cut off so the room could be made for them to be brought in. And then Paul gives the imagery, pushes it even further, and he says, you've become a partaker, a partner, a sharer of the root of the richness, the rich root of the olive tree. And so here's here's Paul's point. So listen gentiles you who believe in jesus there were natural branches that were cut off and then you you were actually grafted in into that one tree that has that root that that rich root and you now have been brought in and you you by virtue of being grafted in you now partake of the fatness of the root. So by virtue of God's electing grace... Gentiles who had no claim whatsoever now enjoy the grace of God in Jesus Christ. They enjoy the the electing benefits of God's grace. And they enjoy the covenant grace of God which God had given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so, you have to appreciate the picture. So, you don't actually contribute... You might produce olives, but by the way, your olives from a wild olive branch will never be as good as the olives from a natural olive branch, okay? So it's not like God's thinking, hmm, how can I make a better olive? It's not his point. His point is this. You don't belong here. By God's grace, he brought you in. And now, it's not that you make some massive contribution to the olive tree, you being grafted in, you now, as it were, suck up the very fatness of the root of being now grafted in to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of God's covenant promises to them. Verse 18, and we'll close with this verse. I have 16 points. Don't be arrogant toward the branches. Don't be arrogant towards the branches. You're grafted in. You're you're soaking up the fatness of the root by virtue of, of God's grace of grafting you in. Don't you dare boast against the branches. Now, some commentators think that only broken off branches are in view, but I would actually say most likely it refers to both remaining branches and broken off branches and just reflects an overall attitude towards Jewishness, whether they're broken off or remaining Tom Schreiner says the main burden of this section is to warn believing Gentiles about the danger of boasting and pride. And so it's easy, it's easy. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to begin to think, huh. So God actually broke off Jewish branches so that I could be grafted in. You hear how I said, I... You might start to think, well, they're cut off. I'm grafted in. There must be be some kind of spiritual superiority with me. I mean, why would God cut them off and put me in if I wasn't, you know, altogether a, a, a really cool branch? Easy for the Gentiles. Oh, this is so important. Easy for the Gentiles to become guilty of the same Jewish pride. What has Paul done in the first number of chapters of Romans? He has hammered against Jewish pride. Don't you think just because you got circumcision, don't you think just because you got the law, don't you think just because you got the fathers that you're, how, you're somehow superior to these Gentiles? And so now it's flipped. So the Gentiles now are, are in danger of becoming proud Just like the Jews have been proud against the Gentiles. And so, Paul condemned Jewish pride. Now he's condemning Gentile pride. And so you got to remember, in the ancient world, Greco-Roman world, the Jewish people kept to themselves. Right? They were often exempt from Roman law that would... Be a contradiction to their Jewish law. Okay. In some ways, the Roman government, in order to dissipate tension and, and conflict, actually made certain concessions to the Jewish people, but the Jewish people kept to themselves. And they dressed weird, and they had weird haircuts. And they only hung out with other Jews. And they actually never, never went and ate good Texas barbecue. <laughs> and they had an attitude towards Gentiles that the Gentiles were, were actually nothing more than just religious dogs. And so how popular do you think Jewish people were in the Roman Empire? They weren't very popular. There was a a not-so-subtle anti-Semitism that wove its way through the Roman Empire. So let's say you get saved. Let's say you're you're a, a regular old Roman pagan, all right? For some of you, it doesn't require a lot of imagination. And you get converted, And you believe in in Israel's Messiah, the Lord Jesus, your life has been changed, and now you're in you're in a Christian ecclesia, and you've got all your Gentile buddies, and then you got your Jewish people. How well do you think things are going to mesh? Not very well. could you imagine i mean this is just me but like if it was a church potluck right? and let's say i've got let's say i've got my good jewish friend ray and i go through the line and i sit down right next to ray and i've got pulled pork and i got bacon and i got ham and I start looking at him, and I'm like, you are such a loser. You don't even know what you're missing out on. <laughs> I wave the bacon in front of his nose. He starts to drool. I'm thinking, okay, he's close, he's close. And then out of conscience sake, he says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> yeah. Is this, is this going to cause some tension in the church? Who's going to think they're superior Well, both of them are going to think they're superior. And so Paul's point is simply this. The gospel just doesn't automatically eradicate the baggage that we have when we come into the kingdom of God. It's not not as if all of a sudden everybody coming into the kingdom of God was just like, hey, look at that. We're one big happy family. Praise God. We bring stuff with us, don't we? And so now Paul says, now if you boast, you have to understand something. You don't support the root, the root supports you. In other words, your boasting of some sort of Gentile superiority is absolutely ridiculous because you're forgetting something and you're forgetting the fact that this tree has a root. David Peterson says, by themselves, wild olives are of no value. Even, they are, even when they are affixed to the cultivated olive, they do not sustain the root and contribute nothing to the tree. Everything that you are, you are because you're drawing it up from the root that supports you. You're grafted in by grace and the root that supports you is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the promises made to them. Paul's not done. Let me just conclude today with this. Number one, this should be so clear. Anti Semitism has no place in the Christian church. Our root is the patriarchs, our inclusion is divine grace. Second, you and I live off of the fatness of that root, and so I just want to remind you this morning, as you worship Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you also were worshiping Israel's Messiah, and as you did, you were sucking in the fatness of the root, Tomorrow morning when you open your Bible to do your devotions and you open up to the Hebrew scriptures and you're reading a book that falls somewhere between Genesis and Malachi, what are you doing? You are soaking in the fatness of the root. And so understand that everything that we are, every time, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're celebrating a new covenant meal that we've been included in only by grace. The fact that we're in that new covenant by grace is is another demonstration of us just sucking up the fatness of the root. So boasting and grace are mutually exclusive. If you boast, it's because you don't have grace. Hmm. That's pretty strong. Yes. If you boast against other people, you have completely forgotten grace. You are what you are by grace and grace alone. No special claim at all. In fact, you and I were altogether outsiders who had nothing to bring, nothing to offer, and no claim to make. Some of you make such tiny, 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 tiny tiny progress in the Christian life Because you've not come to embrace the fact that everything you are is grace and grace excludes condemnation of others and grace excludes actually boasting or triumphing over others. By the way, I'm already two minutes over, so it doesn't matter. Sometimes we can do this In subtle ways that don't even really strike us that that's what we're doing. Let's let's say that you've come to the conclusion that God is absolutely sovereign. Our God is in the heavens, He does whatever He pleases you've come to the doctrines of grace. You've come to understand total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. And you start to look back on your early Christian life and you kind of, you, you wish that you knew back then what you know now and, and, and all of that. And, 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 and I want to say, be careful that you're not arrogant towards other people who aren't where you are. If you see the beauty of soli deo gloria, you see the majesty of sovereign grace, you understand that, that nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And 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 you you have a would we'll you say you have a better understanding let me just remind you you did not come to that better understanding because you were morally spiritually or intellectually superior to anybody you came to that because of god's grace so don't you dare triumph over others who aren't where you are at Because if it weren't for God's grace, you might be worse off than them. Right? So, as wild olive branches grafted into the tree, we get life from that root. Next week, we're going to sing these words. So, we have to remember this. The whole triumphant host... Give thanks to God above. Hail, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, they ever cry. Hail, Abraham's God and mine. I join the heavenly lays, all might and majesty are thine, and endless praise. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for taking wild, unnatural branches and grafting us in to this marvelous tree of being a part of your people. All of grace. All of grace. Father, for those who are here that, that, Lord, they're not in the tree yet, we pray that today you'd graft them in. We pray that today you would provoke them to jealousy, that they would want to know the Lord Jesus and the forgiveness of sins, and they'd want to be a part of your people. Do a mighty work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.